0: Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I'm excited to have two new films to talk about today. The first one is Master Gardener, coming to us from Magnolia Pictures. It stars Joel Edgerton, Sigourney Weaver, and Quintessa Swindell. It is written and directed by Paul Schrader. Cinematography is by Alexander Dynan. Music is by Dev Hines. It runs 111 minutes and is rated R for language, brief sexual content, and nudity. What's it about? Narvel Roth is a meticulous horticulturist who is devoted to tending the grounds of a beautiful estate and pandering to his employer, the wealthy dowager Mrs. Haverhill, when she demands that he take on her wayward and troubled great-niece. It unlocks dark secrets from a buried, violent past. Now, if you are a fan of Paul Schrader's work, you will have probably seen his most recent two films prior to Master Gardener, which were First Reformed and The Card Counter. Unfortunately, I gotta tell you that the law of diminishing returns strikes again. This, hopefully, is the final film in what has become a bleak trilogy about self-reflecting men who have a sordid past and are experiencing an existential crisis and in need of some kind of redemption. In First Reformed, it's a pastor. In The Card Counter, it's a poker player, both of which have something much bigger on their mind, something that they are trying to escape. And in this film, it's really no different. Joel Edgerton plays narvel roth this gardener but in another life he was a white supremacist that was his sin and he has been given this opportunity to reform himself by becoming a horticulturist in this fancy garden and really dedicating his life to the beauty that he finds in flowers and plants instead of hating and killing people who don't look like him. The performance is okay. Joel Edgerton plays this very stoic. He is soft-spoken and gentle, which is definitely in line with the film's theme here of asking that question, is a sin of white supremacy? Can a person who not only hated people Of a specific race, but was literally a contract killer for those people. Can that person come back from that? Are they worthy of existing and having a prosperous, satisfying life? Do they deserve love? Do they deserve forgiveness? Personally, I struggled a lot with the depiction of this character simply because. We see very brief moments of flashbacks that are expressing very dark events in Narvel Roth's life. That's how we learn that he was a proud boy. We see him with white pride and Nazi tattoos all over him. And we see some of his awful acts against people of color. He's haunted by it. And he can't forget that. And so he journals, of course, because that's what Paul Schrader protagonists do. And he relates his life to gardening. And the issues that I have are the character felt so far removed from this past life. We don't see any sort of transitionary period. We just drop in on him years after he has left it behind and are meant to, I guess, have empathy for him and hope that the best comes for him. Now, he certainly is someone that I would say is worth rooting for. He is kind. He is caring. He is being a bit abused by this Dowager played by Sigourney Weaver, probably one of her own darker type of roles. She's not quite a villain, but in a sense, she's almost like an antagonist because of the way that she controls Narvel Roth's life. We get the sense that maybe he is even just there to be of use to her for sexual favors, and that has affected his psyche and his own sense of self worth. And being Enter the niece, the great niece, played by Quintessa Swindell. Her name is Maya, and she is the typical Paul Schrader character who is a young person that comes into the life of this man that is experiencing this crisis and helps him to see a way out. Helps him to look at the world differently and bring him through this painful period of redemption. It did not work for me nearly in the same way that it has in the previous two films. I had multiple issues with this Maya is a character who is of mixed race. That is incredibly important to this because we're talking about someone who has a a past of her own. She has experienced lots of trauma. Her parents are no longer with her. She's got a background of drugs and asshole men that she has been in relationship with. And she is really in need of Another person in her orbit. Like she is alone as well. So we have these two loners that are coming together and she has to learn to accept him, right? And so if she is going to learn about his past and her being of mixed race, father was a black man, how is she going to feel about that? The way the film handles those interactions are terrible. I, I could not like them less. Particularly, there is a sexually explicit type of scene in this film that is supposed to be touching, I think, but it was the most awkward and uncomfortable thing I've seen in a long time because of the portrayal of this man with this past and and this young woman who is over 20 years beneath his age. I, I just did not buy this relationship in the slightest. It felt almost exploitive to me and then i think that overall this story is told in a way that is simpler and less propulsive than schrader's previous two entries of this type i didn't think that it was uh, very well acted it was so totally solid it was okay but nothing about the performances stood out to me and everything felt very on the nose when it came to the dialogue like it just feels like Paul Schrader was losing his grasp a little bit. As if he had rehashed this so many times that he was lacking for ways to interrogate this in a truly thoughtful and interesting way. Uh, The filmmaking style also is nothing special at all. There's one very strange scene where it is like this fantastical... Uh, explosion of flowers and beauty all around these two characters as I believe they're supposed to be experiencing some sort of bliss and calm and satisfying, you know, uh, resolution to their story. But it it, it like totally takes you out of the story to me. It's like a whimsical scene in the middle of this very serious movie. And it just the mixture doesn't work for me at all. This was a big, big miss. I, I do think Sigourney Weaver puts in a good effort, but she's in this in a minimal amount of time. And, and really, it's not, I guess, about the performances being so poor, but it's just about the material not being deep enough to say anything. I think if you're going to address white supremacy in this day and age as a topic, you have to do so with a lot more nuance than he does here. That is what I see lacking. I don't see Paul Schrader as a typically great director or with someone that has the ability to pull out things in a very cautious way. This feels too easy to me, too hopeful for Paul Schrader in a sense. I don't want to give away the exact ending, but You're typically used to his films ending with a lot of cynicism, and he kind of goes a different route in this, and I don't know that it really worked for this particular story and these characters. So this was a movie that was not very successful, in my opinion, and also, on top of all of this, gardening as a topic is super boring and not interesting to me in the slightest. It feels like Schrader just got all his information off of Google. It doesn't really again go very far beneath the surface. Even in the gardening, it's just there for a metaphor more or less. I loved his depictions of a priest, a pastor rather in the reformed church. Um that setting totally into that personally speaking. Uh also like the poker setting and a person with a military past, totally into those things. Gardening just not my thing. So maybe This, you'll get more traction out of it if you are an outdoorsy person with a green thumb. I don't know. Master Gardener is in theaters now. I think this is a totally skippable movie. I think Paul Schrader as a whole has a lot more like this in his directorial filmography than he does uh, hits like First Reformed and really good ones like The Card Counter. Yes, he does have this history of being a great writer. I just think age is key- catching up with him. Age and repetitiveness of storytelling, as I said at the very top, it's diminishing returns. So I don't really recommend this film at all. The second movie to talk about is The Little Mermaid, coming to us from Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures. It stars Halle Bailey, Jonah Howard King, David Diggs, Aquafina, Jacob Tremblay, Noma Dumezwey, Javier Bardem, and Melissa McCarthy. It is directed by Rob Marshall, it is written by David McGee, and it is based on both Disney's The Little Mermaid by Ron Clements and John Musker, and the original The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Cinematography is by Dion Beebe, and music is by Alan Menken. It runs 135 minutes and is rated PG-13 for action, peril, and some scary images. What's it about? A young mermaid makes a deal with a sea witch to trade her beautiful voice for human legs so that she can discover the world above water and impress a prince. First of all, Halle Bailey. Star-making performance. Phenomenal pipes. Her vocals on these songs just get inside you and evoke so much emotion. I think for an actress, she shows a lot of promise as well. She's still pretty good when she's on land. But it's a bit jarring because she has to go from having her be the main voice of the film to not having the ability to speak for a large chunk of time. The film deals with this and I think understands that you need to hear her. And so there are a couple of times where we hear her singing internally to herself. I actually really liked that because it broke up the absence of... Her voice, which is what The Little Mermaid is all about. My daughter didn't care for it as much. She thought it was a little bit hokey in the way that they implemented it. So we had some mixed feelings about that, but I thought it was great. Um, I wanted to hear more of her. And so every chance we got, I thought that that was a benefit. Her chemistry with co-star Jonah Howard King, who I think is fine in this movie, I'm not familiar with him. It's the first time I can remember seeing him anything. Maybe I've seen him in previous films and supporting roles and just never noticed him. I think he's good. Uh, he plays a pretty simple prince, to be honest. I think it's probably a good casting because of the fact that he is not a well-known, at least to me, actor. So he's not somebody that comes with a ton of baggage, even positive baggage of being like a huge sex symbol. And so I think he slips into this role a lot easier because of that. But her chemistry with him felt very natural. Doesn't feel sexual at all, which I appreciate because this is a live action adaptation of a Disney movie. This is a movie you're going to take kids to. So I don't need it to go that route. And it didn't. There's just a genuine longing that both of them are able to come up with and express from seeing someone who they can relate to or just in general someone that treats them kindly and respectfully which they both do to each other the underwater visuals are pretty good it is colorful and energetic during the songs those are absolutely the standout moments but body movement and things like hair floating in the water can look kind of janky at times I think, honestly, maybe we just shouldn't let anyone other than James Cameron do underwater movies anymore. That would be the answer here. This lies somewhere between Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Avatar The Way of Water. It's not as bad as Black Panther, in my opinion. It's obviously, nothing will ever be as good as Avatar The Way of Water, except Avatar 3. The musical numbers do carry this, as I was saying. This reminds you just how excellent and perfect the soundtrack is. If you're not singing these songs underneath your breath, or even out loud while the film is playing, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's easy to get swept away in that. And I honestly wondered afterward if maybe I was even too forgiving on things that I didn't care as much about because the songs were so good. And I was on an elevated emotional high from each song number And I was just anxiously awaiting the next set piece where that was going to occur. There are several new songs, two of which I think felt very much like stage play musical numbers. They don't necessarily fit the pop song style of the rest of the Little Mermaid soundtrack, but they felt more like you'd find them in a Rob Marshall musical adaptation similar to Into the Woods. I dug them. Uh, My daughter wasn't a huge fan of those. She thought that they were a bit too distracting because they weren't like the rest, but I'm a big stage theater person. I mean, she is too, but I guess for some reason it worked for me. I thought that they were fine. Uh, the other new song is a rap, mostly performed by Scuttle, with some assistance from Sebastian. It's really cute and funny. Those uh, performers for Sebastian and Scuttle being V Diggs and Aquafina, so you know that they can bring the rhymes. Anne Linwell Miranda was... A part of this film, so I'm guessing he probably had a hand in writing that. Uh, once you hear it, you'll think the same thing, I think, automatically. It's a lot of fun, and it highlights his presence in this film and takes advantage of their other talents outside of acting. I really like how they framed the kingdom in this, there aren't a lot of changes to the base Little Mermaid story that we know so well from the Disney animated picture. It does not lean into the grim, dark world of the original, which is great. So what they did here, though, is they set up the kingdom that Eric is the prince of as an island in the Caribbean. And Eric himself is a white adoptee to a black queen. He longs to get out in the world, and he wants to connect their kingdom to others through trade but his mother the queen fears the seas because their their nation is known for experiencing tons of shipwrecks in fact that's how eric was brought to them as well and she believes in this sort of superstition that the gods don't want them to be out exploring so she wants to keep everything safe and contained He and Ariel connect so well because they both have this shared desire to break free from their parents' rules and the control and the historical norms of both of their societies, and their love story bridges the relationship between their two worlds. I was less a fan of the mermaid world, honestly. I just didn't care about Ariel's sisters who get introduced in this movie. We barely see them or hear from them, or even her dad, King Triton all that much and so when we did it felt a little bit forced to me the mer people themselves can look really weird out of water also kind of going back to the visuals a bit maybe we get used to seeing them in that sort of hazy way when they're under the water in cgi but they just they look really strange to me once they emerge other performances melissa mccarthy is an actress i really do not care for but she eats up her screen time and uh, gives a delicious performance as the conniving and bitter Ursula the Sea Witch. I thought she was great. Her big musical number, Poor Unfortunate Souls, is an absolute banger. And then the final set piece where she becomes giant uh, is looks really cool as well. DeV Diggs I have always loved, and he kills it as Sebastian. I think this is something that sets this particular... Disney live action remake apart from some of the ones in the past he is a perfect comedic release and the first time that one of these films has captured the magic of the animal sidekick we all have this nostalgia if you grew up watching the animated films for characters that were the animals whether it's Abu in Aladdin Sebastian in The Little Mermaid pretty much everybody maybe like Zazu you could say in the lion king but the rest of these live action remakes have not really understood that and done it in a way that felt equivalent and i think that this one did aquafina as scuttle is also a lot of fun and pretty perfect casting for a bird-brained character flounder still looks like a nightmare fish to me with his human eyes and lips Especially when he's talking, it it's just weird. It it does not look normal, (laughs) and it distracts me. But luckily, Jacob Tremblay's voice work is really perfectly fitting for that character. And we don't see Flounder a lot because he's stuck in the water and can't go on land. Overall, I would put this in the upper tier of Disney live action remakes. I personally rank them Cinderella, Pete's Dragon, and The Jungle Book. I think this is kind of on par with The Jungle Book for me. And I loved it and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I went in extremely skeptical. I was not thinking that I would like this movie. I thought it was completely unnecessary and I couldn't have been more wrong. And I know that I am not the only one to feel that way. Several of my other Seattle film critics, some who can even be curmudgeonous at times, really enjoyed this as well. So I don't think that I'm alone. Uh, And I think that families will have an absolute blast with this one in the theaters it's a lot of fun it looks really good for the most part and the songs man the songs you just you can't beat this soundtrack there's not a ton of music but every single song is a 5 out of 5 uh, at least the original soundtrack and the new songs i said i think add to it in a positive way little mermaid will be in theaters on may the 26th So by all means, get out there and go see it. Well, that's it for this episode of FF Plus. Thanks for sticking with me. If you're enjoying the show, find us on your app of choice and leave us a review and a rating. We would appreciate that. It means a lot and helps us get noticed by other listeners who are looking for a great movie podcast. Also, check out the other shows on our network, Now Playing Network at nowplayingnetwork.net and follow us on the social media channels. There are links to both all of the show's social media channels and my personal social media channels in the show notes to every episode. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling good.